0: Our cabinet ministers should be laughing at this project when it comes across their desk, and it should not be something that's heavily debated. Mm-hmm. This should be an easy no. You're listening. You're
1: listening. You're listening. You're listening to Tara, Hello, and welcome to the show. My name is Andrea Miller.
2: And I'm Elizabeth Dowdell and we'll be your hosts for the next half hour of environmental news and stories. Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM, a campus and community recording studio located in Edmonton, Alberta. We are situated on Treaty 6, the historic and present territory of Cree, Métis, Blackfoot, Dene, Lakota Sioux, and many other First Peoples that live and gather here.
1: As you listen to our show this week... We invite you to think about the set of responsibilities you have to treaty, whether you think of yourself as a settler, immigrant, or Indigenous person. How do you benefit from the economic, social, and political systems in place on this land? What are you doing to learn about the injustices that keep these systems running smoothly?
2: Today, we're sharing the first part of an interview with Ariel Duranger, executive director and co-founder of Indigenous Climate Action, one of the organizations behind Reject Tech a grassroots campaign challenging the Tech Frontier oil sands project and the Canadian government that has made headlines at COP25 and in other news. So you might be asking, what
1: is the Tech Frontier project? And why should we reject Tech? There are a lot of reasons to oppose the project, and we'll save those for Ariel to explain. But
2: let's start by getting some background on the company itself. Tech is a Canadian diversified resource company basically a mining company, uh, with a focus on copper, zinc, coal, and energy. The company headquarters are located in Vancouver, British Columbia, but the business has 13 mining operations or interests across Canada, the USA, Chile, and Peru. Tech describes itself as a company, quote, committed to responsible mining and mineral development with expertise in environmental protection and who recognize our success depends on our ability to establish collaborative relationships with communities."
1: While the company does a good job of promoting itself, it has a less impressive environmental record in practice. In 2017, Tech was charged $1.4 million for selenium pollution in a tributary of the Elk River, British Columbia, related to its coal mine operations. In 2016, Tech was fined over $3 million related to multiple spills from a smelter operation located in Trail, British Columbia that contaminated the Columbia River. And in a 2012 lawsuit in the United States brought by the Colville Confederated Tribes, Tech admitted this same smelter had been polluting the Columbia River with heavy metals for over a century, since 1896.
2: The Tech Frontier project is the largest proposed open pit mine in oil sands history and is located between Fort McMurray and Fort Chippewan in the Athabasca region of Alberta. Now open pit mines are somewhat of a rarity in the oil sands today because of their large environmental footprint and the incredibly high cost to build, operate, and then try to remediate this type of project. The proposed Tech
1: Frontier mine has undergone a full environmental review through a joint provincial and federal review process under the Canadian Environmental Assessment Act, and is awaiting a decision from the federal environment minister, Jonathan Wilkinson. That decision is expected by the end of this month, but there has been some suggestion the ruling could be delayed.
2: So now you know who Tech is and what the Frontier Project is all about, you might have some second thoughts about this company being approved to build a new mine under the premise of the national economic interest of Canadians. Let's cut to Terran former Elizabeth Dowdell, that's me, and our guest this week, Ariel Deranger, to hear about her experience with this project and even more reasons to reject Tech.
0: My name is Ariel Tseekwe Durange and I'm a member of the Athabasca Chippewan First Nation, and I'm the executive director and co-founder of Indigenous Climate Action.
2: We're very happy to have you here with us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, so we're talking about the Reject Tech campaign. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about what that is.
0: So actually, this campaign is really, really near and dear to me in this um, sort of like long-term historic way. So I first heard about the Tech Frontier Mine in 2011. And that was the year that I took on a position working with my First Nation, the Athabasca Chippewan First Nation, in looking at the uh, Shell Jackpine Mine expansion. But at the time, Shell also had an application for this project called the Pierre River Mine. And the Pierre River Mine, was completely adjacent to and actually sharing overlapping lease lines with tech resources and the frontier mine and so we actually launched this whole campaign looking at shell um and they had sort of put those two applications jack pine mine expansion and pierre river mine together yet these projects were literally over 100 kilometers apart from each other and we were like no and we thought if we could get the pierre river mine which is directly adjacent to tech that tech would just disappear over time and so we got them to remove their application for the pierre river mine at least take it out of the ea process for the uh, pierre river Jackpine mine process and we were successful in that and then we also sort of challenged the validity of the pierre river mine just in general and shell actually ended up pulling that application completely out of the process and we were like whoo There we go. But what ended up happening is tech resources continue to move forward with their application for the frontier mine my nation intervened in 2014 in the regulatory process saying that the exploration and the drill hole wells were already disrupting the region and it needed to have an environmental review process just for the exploration because they had drilled over 1900 drill sites by this point in the critical habitat of caribou bison and uh, and the migratory birds, and it was going to disrupt our community, particularly the settlement at Poplar Point. Um, You know, at that time, I really was like, we got to stop this project. And I was telling everyone about it. And people are like, who's Tech Resources? Like, who is this company? When we looked further at the project, we started realizing that this wasn't just a small mine, but it was actually the largest Ever proposed mine, as far as square footage goes, over 29,000 hectares of land, and producing 260 over 260,000 barrels of tar sands oil a day was the proposal. And this would be like one sing one of the largest mine operations in the region, in an area that has had been untouched at the time. For me, like, this has been on my radar since 2011. So that's mm-hmm. nine years of being like, we got to stop this mine. And everyone being like, who's tech?
2: Okay.
0: So that's, you know, this is my history with it. And the Reject Tech campaign really started, well, it started about last year where we really started thinking about, like, what is this mine? How do we get people to talk about it? And we really thought that going to the COP in Madrid could provide us with a really interesting platform to highlight the fact that Canada is failing as a climate leader and also failing and continuing to fail its relationship with the Indigenous peoples of this country through the continued expansion of a dirty fossil fuel project like tech.
2: So you talked about exploration and the impacts of exploration. So our EA process in Canada, um, we sort of say that if it's fossil fuels, go ahead, start drilling anywhere, start exploring. (laughs) Until you find something big that you want to do a big project with, yeah, it's fine. Go ahead. Do what you want on the land is sort of my understanding. Yes. And that's the experience you sort of had with this tech frontier project then.
0: Yes, absolutely. I think like the other thing, too, is there's this idea that uh, indigenous peoples are consulted over these projects. And we are. But again, like you said, only when they found something worth digging up or extracting. Right now, the way that the the consultation process happens in this country is that the, the government, provincially and nationally, can give a lease to a corporation that in many times, tech is Canadian, but many times these are, you know, multinational, internationally traded corporations uh, get to come in and they get to have a lease for exploration. These exploration leases can be many years long and these companies get to go in and put in like lines on the land, like where they're doing seismic lines, they can put in drill holes where they're then doing core samples of the of the land and just generally disturbing the ecology of the regions in which they're doing their exploration. So much so that with the Tech Resources mine, they did over 1,900 core sample drill test sites in their proposed um, mine site. And this caused huge disturbances, not just to the land, but this is in the migratory pathway, Woodland caribou And wood bison, the last remaining free roaming uh, herd of bison in the country. That herd of bison over the time that this company was in the region has been on a steady decline as far as numbers go. So we're talking about serious impacts to species at risk and endangered species in the country. And yet they were still allowed to sort of, you know, business as usual, just everything's greenlighted. And here we are now. The project was greenlighted so much that we had an entire joint review panel process that had included interventions from the First Nations communities with Drawing concerns on the impacts to water, to the impacts on cultural and, and treaty rights in the region, as well as uh, significant species like wood bison and woodland caribou and many of the wild waterfowl and migratory birds that come through the region.
2: Mm-hmm. So huge environmental impacts just from exploration is what I'm hearing. Mm-hmm. And uh, so sort of this push began then at that exploration stage when impacts are starting to happen on the land and starting to have ripple effects throughout the ecosystem. As this sort of campaign built, can you talk to me about that steps and the pathway from 2011 to then COP25 in 2019 and then 2020, if you could. Yeah.
0: So again, 2011 is the first time I heard about the project. I was working for my First Nation and I worked for my First Nation for six years. So in 2017, I worked with my First Nation working on drawing you know, concerns around the expansion of Alberta's uh, tar sands, but also on being involved in climate and in national, provincial and international climate conversations. At that time, I was really focused on the impacts of my community and my community was really heavily involved in the review process, the regulatory review process, uh, as well as like just getting involved in looking at our own studies and how this project impacted us. It was, you know, it, it was a really long, drawn out process where we weren't even sure if this project was going to go through. A lot of people still don't even understand why we're proposing this project because it doesn't make sense economically, it doesn't make sense environmentally, and it doesn't make sense to the decades of concerns that have been raised by the First Nations, uh, Métis communities of of Alberta in the the region. This is like health impacts, impacts on our water quality, impacts on our food systems, and impacts on our abilities to continue practicing our treaty rights. And so there's all these sort of long historical uh, concerns associated. Associated with the industry as a whole. Uh, There's an economic downturn, and here we are, still pursuing this project. So, I thought for a while this project was going to just go away because of uh, economics. I think a lot of people did. Um, I moved on from working for my First Nation and started ICA, and I was just like, I don't know what's happening. Is tech still really a thing? Like, is that still really going to happen? Because it doesn't feel like it. And then people are like, "Oh no, it's it's going to go to a, rev- a review process next year." And I'm like, "They can't possibly like accept this project." And so I was like less involved at this point, just kind of watching from the sidelines. My nation was still an intervener, still raising the concerns, just trying to share and amplify this stuff. And then suddenly, the decision came out in early 2019. There was an approval. Uh, recommended approval for this project from the joint review panel. And this panel is comprised of, you know, different people from different levels of government and different levels of the sectors to review the environmental impacts of this project with presentations from all these First Nations. And again, at this point, I was just a, I was an observer, but I was incredibly taken aback that we would see that this project would be recommended for approval. I think one of the big things that lended to this is that uh, tech resources knew that the the SEA process, the Canadian Environmental Assessment Agency process, was going to be amended and and a whole new sort of track of processes was going to go through. And the SEA 2012 process was a little bit more lenient. And they actually pushed the AER, the Alberta Energy Regulator, to put their project into the review process literally three weeks before they implemented the new SIA process. So they snuck their their project in under an old regulatory review structure, saying that because their project was put on the, on the docket in 2011, that they should be able to go under that process. So first off, this project was reviewed under an older review process, which makes this approval, this recommended approval, very, very fragile in the sense that we could just argue that there are new and better standards particularly when it comes to Indigenous rights and environmental and climate protection that were not effectively reviewed under this process. And so this approval has gone through. And since then, I was like, no, this, this, this can't be this can't be true. <laughs> what are we going to do? Um, and, you know, I, I started this organization, Indigenous Climate Action, and I started talking to communities and community members around what they wanted to do. But more than just the communities in Alberta, there were communities on the pipeline corridor talking about the Trans Mountain Pipeline. We're talking about line three out to the east. We're talking about the Keystone XL. And then I found out that Tech Resources has signed supply deals with all three of these pipeline companies to supply their oil, to fill those pipelines, to justify them from an economic perspective. So we actually have direct ties. So this question rose to me. If we are supplying the Trans Mountain Pipeline, which is now a nationally owned project, Canada has a vested interest in tech resources going through. There's a direct conflict of interest in Canada now handing down a federal and cabinet approval of this project that is in their best interests to support their purchasing this billion dollar, multi-billion dollar pipeline that is literally bleeding money from the Canadian citizens to build a project that will create six megatons of emission and destroy critical ecosystems that are necessary for climate stabilization and that further exacerbate the existing harm to the Indigenous communities in the region. It is just psychotic.
2: You were giving a talk this morning for the University of Alberta's Sustainability Summit and something I kept writing down and circling and I think that you drew a lot of attention to is just the word absurdity, (laughs) that it's there's something that's so blatant, so obviously absurd, so contradictory. So can you talk about this experience of seeing something that's so obvious and so absurd and gathering a community around it and like, how do you make people see what is so obviously visible and absurd when they don't see it? I mean, you say things like
0: 29,000 hectares of land, twice the size of Vancouver. People go, wait, what? And you say, a top of critical habitat of species at risk and endangered. And they're like, "Okay, wait, what? (laughs) And then you say six megatons of emissions. In a time where we're supposed to be addressing the climate crisis and looking for ways to reduce our emissions, we're talking about locking ourselves into a project that has a 40-plus-year Life cycle. And then reclamation will take another 40 plus years on top of it to put back into the ecosystem into a place where it can somewhat yeah. sequester carbon, you know, help us achieve climate stabilization. So, this is like 80 years of ecosystems destabilization mm-hmm. and a loss of carbon sequestration and an increase of emissions and further degradation to water systems, air quality. Uh, food security, and the ability for Indigenous communities to practice their inherent rights. We are talking about saying, yeah, you know what? We need an economy. We need jobs. And that's more important than a climate-stable future. And that recognizing that we need to uphold the rights of communities that literally feel as if they have no other recourse but to accept the damages of these projects because just need to also state this. In the 60 plus years of Tarsane's development, no project, not a single project has ever been denied an approval. Not once. So when you think about this as a reality to the communities that live there and the government saying things like, oh, we have 14 indigenous communities that have signed impact benefit agreement. Or no, they don't even say impact benefit agreements that have signed agreements for this Mm -hmm. project as if they've just like, oh, you know what? Yay, there's another project. We're going to get so much benefit. These agreements are impact benefit agreements, meaning that they are going to accept those impacts of this project for a monetary benefit or an economic benefit from this company. But this doesn't mean that they're saying, yes, we love this. Keep in mind, my nation is one of the signatories to an agreement, an impact benefit agreement. But they were not, they're not enthusiastic about this project. They intervened in the regulatory process during exploration, we intervened as interveners in the review process, raising all these concerns around the cumulative impacts that this project will contribute to in the region. Chief Adam has been stated as talking about, yes, we signed an impact benefit agreement, but we need to address the legacy of harm in the community to our health and our ability to continue our way of life, which has been degraded so much so that they feel as if the only way to get something out of this is to sign a deal this is true coercion intimidation and bribery in its truest form and so you look at this like absurd project from a climate and environmental perspective and you look at what it's been what it it has already done to the communities and you're just like how is this happening the last piece that i want to state is that Canada is just like, we are a climate leader. We have a great plan to reduce our emissions. And Canada's deep decarbonization plan is to get to 150 megatons of emissions annually for the entire country by 2050. Okay, it's 2020, so we got 30 years to figure this out. 30 years, I, sorry, I just said that. Um, and we're gonna lock ourselves into a new project with a 41 year life cycle of emissions of up to six megatons annually. And the entire sector of tarzanth alone has a cap of 100 megatons, so that means that we have 50 megatons of emissions for the rest of every sector from transportation to liquid natural gas to everything else. And Canada is not doing a full accounting, full cost accounting of our emissions through the destruction and loss of carbon sequestration for the destruction of our ecosystems or the methane that's being released through the melting permafrost in the north. We are actually on target to increase our emissions way past 150 megatons, particularly if we're saying, yep, business as usual, let's just keep on digging in the tar sands. Absurd. The project is literally psychotic and absurd. Like we should it should be laughable. Our cabinet ministers should be laughing at this project when it comes across their desk and it should not be something that's heavily debated. Mm-hmm.
2: This should be an
0: easy no.
2: Maybe we can talk about leveraging those facts and leveraging that campaign and getting it to a wider audience and how how you've grown or how you've increased your reach or your spread of that very straightforward campaign of these are the facts. These are the stark numbers, A and B. Look at the difference.
0: I think, you know, facts speak for themselves. Like, let's be real. Like, this is a project that when it comes to emissions to the global climate crisis, when it comes to the destruction of ecosystems that we are supposed to be protecting and the destruction of the rights of Indigenous communities, there's there's just it's just no escaping this. We also have communities even further downstream from this project, like the Smith's Landing First Nation that has been try- has been trying to be an intervener, bringing forward the downstream impacts, not just from like the impacts of the project through the contamination of the ecosystems, but also the climate impacts. And there are many other communities even further north in the NWT, where it crosses a provincial borderline, where they're also talking about seeing the impacts of increases of cancer and contamination of their ecosystems. But we've drawn these imaginary lines. And we're like, oh, this is a provincial project, provincial jurisdiction. And I think one of the biggest challenges we have in people like seeing this project for what it is, is that in the province, we are so bought into this industry, 60 plus years, 60 plus years of this being the bread and butter of the province and particularly of the region, bread and butter of the region and the Athabasca, Cold Lake and Peace regions. People are really married to this idea that this is what we need. But. Even the project itself, Tech Resources, doesn't even know the economic viability of this project because the price of oil has to be at over $120 a barrel in order for this oil to be economically viable. Bare minimum like $90 to $100 for them to like break even-ish and we're not there. The price of oil has been steadily dropping so this project, even though if it gets an approval... And there are so many Albertans and pro-oil folks that are like, we need this project. The project might never be built or at least not be built for like another like, you know, 20, 30 years when the price of oil becomes economically viable, in which I hope we're smart enough to know that we wouldn't want to do this project. So this project doesn't make sense on so many levels. And the big issue is that Albertans feel like it's if we don't approve this is somehow a threat to our economy it's a threat to our economy to be locking ourselves continually into these types of economic systems. We need to like release those clutches and we need to be putting pressure on our governments to diversify our economy here so that we don't just have good jobs, good paying jobs, but that we don't, you know, put our communities in a position where they have to choose between a climate stable future and a future for Indigenous communities and jobs. Like this is a really really sick twisted place that we put our communities here i want everyone to have a job i want people to be able to pay their mortgages and their bills and be able to like live healthy lifestyles but we have to take a look at ourselves too we have to take a look at What does that mean for us? How do we develop those types of economies together? And we need to be talking about a just transition. You know, there's a lot of communities that want to see good, healthy jobs. There are people in the oil and gas industry that have seen the damages that it's caused, not just to the land, but their personal health. There are many people that work in this industry that are struggling with health issues from respiratory diseases to cancers, autoimmune diseases, from the exposure. We deserve healthy jobs we deserve healthy clean environments we deserve a climate stable future and we should not be put in a situation where we're saying that if canada doesn't accept this then that we're not going to have uh, have jobs to pay our bills It's the government's responsibility to ensure that its citizens are taken care of. And it's time for our governments to step up, say no to this project and provide for Albertans in a real way and provide a real economic platform that's going to provide for all those things. Jobs, climate stable future and include indigenous peoples in the development of those economies. I think for us, it's like I'm not here to challenge anyone's jobs. I don't want that. But let's be real. Tech is not going to provide those jobs for you. It's not going to do anything for Alberta's oil and gas economy. It's going to just further lock us into a system that we're saying, yep, this is fine. Let's just keep going while literally the planet is on fire. Look at Australia. Look at the Brazilian rainforest. Look at like everywhere on the planet is on fire right now. The Arctic was on fire a few months ago. Like We're talking about our house is on fire and we're saying, I can't see that, so I'm just going to say everything's fine. Let's just keep building new projects, build more emissions. Oh, it's not economically viable? Shh, don't say that. This is your job. You want it, you want this. And and let's also keep in mind that tech resources and any other oil and gas company is pocketing billions of dollars. That's not coming back into the Alberta economy. That's not coming back to the regular citizens here. So if you're really invested in your ability to maintain your economic stability here, you need to be putting pressure on the government for something more than just this.
2: I like um, the way you called it sort of the sick, twisted space, having... A government who's supporting build more of this oil and gas infrastructure and more of this fossil fuel system. And, you know, it's boom and bust. It's not stable. It's not consistent. These boom
0: and bust economies have been researched
2: to death. Like, just read about Mm -hmm. the boom
0: and bust of oil and gas economies. We need to be diversifying. Now, I'm not saying let's shut down the whole tar sands tomorrow. But we certainly cannot be expanding the tar sands right now. We need to be addressing the legacy of harm of the 60 plus years of development, looking for ways to phase out of this industry and ways to develop a new economic paradigms that don't just address the the, the economic systems, but address like human and indigenous rights within the region.
2: That sounds like reject tech in a nutshell. That and is reject
0: tech in a nutshell. <laughs>
2: That was Ariel Deranger of Indigenous Climate Action, giving us a number of compelling reasons to reject tech. Stay tuned for the second part of our interview with Ariel next week, when we talk about what Indigenous leadership can mean for the environment, for Canada, and for everyday Albertans.
1: We want to thank you, our listeners, and our volunteers who helped make this week's episode. Another thank you to Lucas Burrows for creating the original music you may have noticed this week. Terra Informa is entirely volunteer-run, and we survive because of generous donations to our host studio, CJSR 88.5 FM.
2: If you like what you heard today, have a comment or question, check out our website, terrainforma.ca, tweet us at Terra Informa, or find us on Facebook and Instagram. Catch you next week,
1: right here on Terra Informa.